welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira, and with me as always... Hello, I'm Sean Edry. Great Scott, I've been slipped a Mickey! <laughs> this is a comic book podcast brought to you by the fine folks at Seaquartz, the best online and on-your-shelf source for comic books, news, reviews, and critiques. Buy their books, read their articles, watch their movies. And remember, Seaquartz is on Patreon, supports smart criticism in comics. So let's jump straight into the news... Sad, sad week. Uh, Steve Dillon, artist supreme, dies at the young age of 54. Dillon was the co-creator of Preacher. He was a long-running artist on titles like Hellblazer, on Judge Dredd, and on The Punisher. Arguably the single most important Punisher artist ever, including his creators. Oh yeah. Definitely the one who defined the character for the last 15 years or so. Yeah, his collaboration with Garth Ennis, I think, is single-handedly responsible for rescuing the Punisher from where he was in the 90s. Yeah, and he was also one of the co-founders of the Deadline magazine, which is the most successful of that swath of alt-comics magazine that ran all over Britain in the 1980s because, you know, Crisis, Revolver, Toxic all closed down after like two years, I think, and Deadline survived for like uh, almost a decade and was responsible for stuff like Tanger also. Not only a great artist, but a hugely important individual within the industry. His loss will be felt going forward, especially, and really, like, I'm sort of over 2016 in that sense, because, like, we also lost Darwin Cook, and I can think of so many people more deserving of being gone than Steve Dillon. For example... Speaking of which, just two days after, uh, Jack T. Chick, Christian artist and evangelist, died at 92, not a young age, ironically proving there is no God. It either proves that there's no God, or as R.K. Milholland once said, it proves that there is a God, but like, if you were running the afterlife, who would you want to spend more time with? Okay, so usually when a person dies, you know, a measure of respect is necessary, even if he did some... Bad things because, no, yes, because nobody's perfect, but Jack Chick was a terrible person whose comics advertised terrible ideas, who yeah. preached hate and brimstone and homophobia and xenophobia and chauvinism and what have you. I can't be sad, you know? I don't even want to draw too much attention to the man's quote-unquote work, because he really was a disgusting person. Suffice to say that this is someone who made the world a worse place, right? This is someone who marketed in fear in hatred, in divisiveness. This is someone who, like, literally every breath he took just made the world worse. And now he's dead. And I'm not as invested because... See, this is sort of the paradox with Jack Chick. On the one hand, the man was so evil that you sort of feel an obligation to do the conga on his grave. But on the other hand, he wasn't even that important towards the end of his life because all of his fear-mongering about, like, the evils of comics and how they're going to corrupt your youth and Dungeons and Dragons make people Satanists and all that, people laugh at that now. If you look at his nonsense rhetoric and you just sort of... There's even this sort of, like retro irony appreciation of it of like look how crazy this guy was well yeah that's because we live in our small bubble of people who mock that kind of thing but jack chick comics were huge i don't know sellers but you know people read them people gave them on street corners and obviously the jack chick foundation will exaggerate but they're claiming over 700 million comics delivered worldwide of these silly pamphlets but even if they exaggerate by a factor of 10 these are still still Tens of millions of terrible Sure, but comics. these are also... You see, you call it a bubble, but I don't think that it's a bubble per se. I think it's more that the people to whom Jack Chick marketed these materials 
had never read comics, had never played Dungeons and Dragons, never interacted with people who did. I don't want to push cultural stereotypes, but if you think of like the idea of the Bible Belt and the sort of Deep South who were receptive to messages like Jack Chicks, these people were not going out and playing Xbox anyway, right? They had no idea what was going on in popular culture. So I accept that his message was reaching a lot of people, but I would contend that not so much a bubble, but rather, you know, these were people who were not interacting with that field anyway. Because anyone who knew someone who played Dungeons and Dragons would not automatically assume that that person was a Satanist because he was flat out lying in those tracks, talking about like they do virgin sacrifices. And and I'm like, yeah, the stereotype today is that D&D players are virgins, period. Well, it's a better stereotype. Sure. It was preaching to a choir that was already converted. I'm not so convinced about the lying thing. I think the horrible thing is that he believed it. Uh, you remember oh, I'm sure that he did. War- yeah, you remember that Warren Ellis series, uh, Bad World, that he did for Avatar about the lives of conspiracy and others, and the point of it was that maybe they're causing damage to people, but think about how ro- horrible it is to live in their world. To live in the world of Jack Chick, where he believed that the Catholic Church was a conspiracy made to promote evolutionism and Nazism and atheism at the same time. He believed that. He lived in terror. And he spread the terror around, obviously. This is why, you know, psychiatric evaluation is always a good thing. This is also why, like, with his passing, it's hard for me to, even now, to take him seriously. Steve Dillon and Jack Chick, these are two creators who are going to very different places in the afterlife. And I feel like... No more need be said about Jack Chick, because I guess the vindication now really is that the sort of things that he railed about at the time have become so mainstream and so deeply tied into popular culture that they will never be vilified in that way again. Nobody's going to go to Disney now and be like, Star Wars is promoting paganism. I'm like, good luck with that. You know, you're up against a trillion-dollar corporation now. Sean, you're not... you are not following the internet. Don't you know that Star Wars promoting the most evil thing in the world? What? Feminism. <gasps> not feminism? Yes, yes. Oh, no. Sean. Feminism. Well, we'll get to feminism in a bit. But beforehand, there is one story, like, keeping in the comics news sphere. So, Edison Rex, series by Chris Robertson, has moved to... It used to be published by Monkey Brain digitally, and has moved to a free webcomic format with a Patreon. Now, I'm a huge fan of Edison Rex. The overall premise is Edison Rex is sort of the Lex Luthor super science villain who succeeds in destroying his nemesis and is then adrift until he realizes that the task of protecting humanity now falls to him. And it's sort of a very interesting examination of the tropes of the superhero and the supervillain. The never-written sequel to All-Star Superman. Yeah, well, see, the thing about All-Star Superman is that Lex Luthor never figures it out. Well, he figures it out at the end. Yeah, he tells him, like, you could have spent all this time doing other things, but Superman is still alive. Here, it's like, no, that, that character is taken out in the first couple of pages, and then it really is about the villain's process. Him trying to figure out, okay, what do I do now? I have to do something. I can't just... Well, not having read Edison Rex, though I trust your word, it's good. Chris Robertson... Well, it's free uh, now, so you can, if you are so inclined. It's interesting because we've talked about, over the last episode, about the changing models of publication and how we're slowly moving from writing only via publishers to self-publishing to working via digital only and now to just saying, I trust that I have enough fans that they support my work 
whatever. I don't need a publication line to carry me forward. Mm -hmm. The only problem with that, and it is a problem that, I mean, the last time I looked at the Edison Rex Patreon, granted that it only just went up, they were at $74 a month. The key to understanding Patreon, much like any self-publishing initiative, is that you have to have some kind of power of hype and marketing behind you, because otherwise, there are so many Patreons competing for people's attention. If you can't stand out, and again, like part of the problem here is I don't know why Edison Rex left Monkey Bird. There was a two-year hiatus between issue 16 and 17, for reasons unknown. Nobody knows why. Did he do anything else during that time? Was he writing... He did do other books, but not... It's one of those problems with passion projects, right? Because, yeah, they are passion, but they don't necessarily give you all the money that you need. Well, I also don't know what the arrangement was with Monkey Brain at the time, right? But you would think that eliminating shipping costs by having it be digital only... Yeah, but Monkey Brain still... You know, they have deals with other companies to print the collections, right? Because we had Vendette via Dark Horse and IDW did Amazing for us, right? So, you know, these deals exist. But it's it's interesting to see what will happen with Monkey Brain. This would make so much more sense if Robertson had explained the move, because on the surface of it, you're right. It does make some sort of rudimentary sense to say... We can do this as a webcomic. And in fact, what they're doing Cut is... Cut the middleman completely. Exactly. They are republishing the entire comic in free webcomic format, and then we'll be continuing the series only through the webcomic. And because it's free, it's not locking anybody out who got hooked on the series and now sort of has to start with a different pay scheme or whatever. It's not that. So I appreciate the gambit. I hope it works out. The thing with Patreon is it is so unstable as a platform. It's not like Kickstarter where you get a lump sum and that's the end of it, right? Patreon, the whole idea is you basically subscribe to a monthly payment when there is no guarantee of monthly output. Well, there are certain deals. I support several Patreons. Some of them are on a monthly basis, like I pay every month and what comes comes, but others are on content basis. Uh, The guy who does the videos analyzing comics on YouTube, Strip Down, Panel Naked, something like that. I Sorry, I can't remember the name. Very great show. You pay him by video. I give like three bucks per video. So if he does three videos a month, I give him nine bucks. If he does one, I give him three bucks and that's it. Okay. See, that's the sort of format that makes more sense, I think. Because I think that... Lilav also works like that, but I'm not sure. Yeah, there are all sorts of deals. It doesn't have to be monthly. Okay. Well, I mean, I wish them luck. It really is a great webcomic. I advise everyone... As far as I know, the individual issues are still being sold on Monkey Brain, along with the trades. If anybody wants to check them out in light of the webcomic proceeding to publication, go for it. Otherwise, just wait for the rest of the series to be uploaded. Okay. Shenanigans, Uh, Tom. Both of them are connected, sadly. Yes, in several ways, actually, when you think about it. So, Marvel, speaking of feminism, Marvel has not had a good couple of weeks. And these things are connected, as you pointed out. So let me sort of break it down. This all started with Riri Williams, who's the character of Ironheart, right? This is the 15-year-old... The new Iron Man, the, yeah. The new Iron Man, the 15-year-old black girl who is replacing Tony Stark. And J. Scott Campbell, who is a noted cheesecake artist, was hired to do a variant cover. By Midtown Comics, specifically. Yeah, it's a shop-specific variant. The variant was... Not, J. Scott Campbelly. It was J. Yeah. Scott Campbelly, but also, like, I do want to sort of draw the line of it was not 
Sana Takeda with like Heroes for Hire where their boobs were all out and sort of like covered in tentacles. This wasn't that, but it was sort of weird to see him draw this 15 year old in like tight pants with her butt basically sticking out. Not the sort of thing that would immediately horrify you, but on a more subtle level, it was like, eh, she's 15. What are you doing? Well, it's one of those things that for me draws the line between people who are longtime comics readers and people who are pretty new, not comic, you know, American superheroes specifically, because when I saw the people online saying, you know, this is terrible and over-sexualized, some of them, not all of them, I was a bit, really? And then I thought about it, well, yeah, but I spent so long in this culture, and, Mm -hmm. you know, I grew up right at the tail of the end of the 90s, where Cheesecake was still all that, as it were. You know, my first Wizard magazine that I bought when I... I was on a trip to the U.S., featured that kind of art on the cover and on the inside pages. So I'm like, well, that's how American artists draw 15-year-old girls in superhero titles. You don't even have to go that far, Tom. You remember, like, in the New 52 relaunch Catwoman, they had that pose of her, like, with her her butt and her boobs Uh, on the same side? I remember Brouhaha over Teen Titans with the Wonder Girl, which Janelle Asselin, I believe, complained about, and naturally hordes of Twitter misogynists jumped all over. Of course. You make an excellent point there, which is, you know, I'm in the same boat as you, right? I grew up with this stuff. I roll my eyes at it, but I don't necessarily... You normalize it, right? You know, not all of them. This is how some artists draw 15-year-old girls. Now, normalizing it doesn't mean approving of it. No, no. But it also, it's sort of like my reaction when I saw the cover was just like, of course he did. It was the same thing with Milo Minara and Spider-Woman, right? Like, of course they did that. That is what they are known for. When you hire this artist to do any image that involves a woman, you know what you're getting. This could not have come as a surprise to Midtown Comics. If you call up J. Scott Campbell and say, draw me this character, you might want to make sure she's 18 and over because he's going to draw her as if she is. Now, there has been a lot of vitriol in the response, but most of it at least from what I saw, was aimed at the cover and not at the artist. People were criticizing the art style. They were criticizing the choices. There was this hashtag, you know, this is how a teen girl looks like with images of art from other comics that actually look like 15-year-old girls and dress like 15-year-old girls. Initially, it was that. But I hardly ever saw, and I assume there were because this is the internet and hate will flow on, I hardly ever saw people tweeting directly at Scott Gamble saying stuff like, you know, you're a scum and you should be chased off the internet and burn in hell. It was angry criticism, but it was criticism of the art. It was initially criticism of the art. Here's the thing. And this is something that Kieran Schick on uh, Comics Alliance talked about, and he made a really excellent point about this. It started out as criticism of the artwork. And then J. Scott Campbell did the thing that he should not have done, which was respond, and he took the Frank Cho line of, oh, creative freedom, everybody's butthurt, I can do what I want, it's my cover, you don't understand, you're all just, like, raging for no reason, what are you talking about? Like, basically belittling and sort of showing himself to have a complete lack of empathy to anyone who disagreed with him. And she had pointed out this is a problem that has been going on in the industry and with Marvel and DC specifically with these creators who are so ridiculously entitled that not only are they incapable of understanding opposing perspectives, like if you don't agree that J. Scott Campbell's cover was inappropriate, that's fine. That is totally okay. Opinions are what they are, right? But what Campbell did was attack his critics. And then it turned personal. 
then there was, you know, J. Scott Campbell is scum. Because look at how somebody goes to him and says, this is not what a 15-year-old black girl looks like. And he said, well, I say she is. Great. The negativity always starts. And, and this has been the case in every single instance where these stories have come up, right? It was Milo Minara had the good sense to shut up, right? He just said, well, that's how I paint. I don't know what you want from me. I, I was commissioned, right? Raphael Albuquerque was like, you know, on second thought, maybe the thing with Batgirl wasn't a good idea. Take it down. In the Raphael Albuquerque case, it was a very good art. It just wasn't appropriate for what you were publishing. It was literally the opposite message of the actual comic. Sure. And Frank Cho went on this whole man-baby wine fest about how uh, Greg Recco was suppressing his creative freedom because he wouldn't let him draw Wonder Woman with her panties on the outside. This sort of cycle, it just keeps going on and on and on. And it's the same story with a different artist on a regular basis. And the problem is not that these criticisms exist. It's that these creators are so thin-skinned and so incapable of handling anything that is not fawning adulation. That's what it is. You do not have to insult your critics. You don't have to take the immediate stance that there's a conspiracy against you or that you're being attacked out of quote-unquote political correctness. You can just assume that people have a problem with your stuff and that that's okay. In one of those strange coincidences, I recently came into possession of the original Kurt Busiek Dark Horse comics with Carrie Nord. And I don't know, have you read those? There was one character he created during that run, a sort of a Red Sonia-like character, because they couldn't use Red Sonia, I believe, called Janissa the Widowmaker. And her backstory involved being raped repeatedly. Of course. And it does. there was a lot of letter writings at the time. People wrote to Dark Horse physical letters because this was the tail end of the 1990s and that was still a thing. If you could follow it online if you want, because naturally it's not printed in the trade, you know, he did exchange, but Kurt Busiek stayed a gentleman about it and he disagreed, but he printed the responses and he was never like, you're trying to silence me. Yeah. No, no. Because Kurt Busiek is a professional. That's what it is. He is someone who does not constantly feel the need to prove that he is the best and he's being maligned and everyone else is against him, but he is a daring auteur. No, he doesn't need that. Which is ironic because he is the best around and nothing's going to ever keep him down. Exactly. People who are fans of Kurt Busiek, they don't like him because he projects this air of... I'm the best. It's because, no, the man knows how to understand criticism, and you can laugh with him about the crossing. You know, he can have a sense of humor about his own failings, and that counts for a lot. That says a lot about your confidence as a creator, that you are able to look at people who are criticizing you and say, like, look, I don't personally agree with you, but if that's how you feel, fine. Now, in a direct continuation to Uh the Scott Campbell thing, Chelsea Kane author of Mockingbird. Marvel just published the last issue, Mockingbird number eight of the series. And the cover featured one of the covers, because naturally Marvel had like millions of variants or whatever. Of course. Featured Mockingbird wearing a shirt saying, ask me about my feminist agenda. And they did. And the people began to hound her on Twitter. And it was so severe that she just crossed off her online account. I object to the term people. When describing the harassers of Chelsea Kane, I will not call them people because this neckbeard incursion, you could set it to a clock by now, follows the same damn pattern every single time. Now, Chelsea Kane, being a novelist of some years, 
pointed out on Twitter before she deleted it that, you know, she had been writing for years and years and years. It wasn't until she got into comics that she had to start blocking people. In comes Brian Bendis's stupid ass. One of the last exchanges that she had on Twitter was that Brian Bendis posts a comment to her that says, it's not comics. Brian, it is comics. You know why it's comics? Because of you. Because of Frank Cho. Because of J. Scott Campbell. Because of Mark Miller. Because of that hypocrite Axel Alonso who proudly declared at NYCC that he was the furthest thing from a social justice warrior. One of Kane's last tweets before she deleted her account was, I'm amazed at the cruelty comics brings out in people. And she is not wrong because this bullshit has been happening over and over and over again, we are seeing it on such a regular basis that much like the whole concept of the TNA titillation, to some extent, we're normalizing it. To some extent, we sort of roll our eyes and be like, well, of course, people ended up working themselves into a frothing neckbeard basement troll rage that only proves every single goddamn stereotype and about the great, comic the book gr- fans. And the great irony, of course, is that these people are seeking their safe spaces, right? No, they're not. Because these people that rage against, you know, PC culture and safe spaces, they are always looking for a safe space against feminism, against women, against minorities, invading their precious comic book kingdom, which was until now belonging only to white, straight men. And oh my God, they're writing gay characters in the Justice League. What will become of the children? Sean, think of the children. These people are afraid. It's unbelievable. They're raging against... Every limitation, every time someone is quote-unquote censored, but they are the most censorship-friendly people there are. It's amazing. The hypocrisy is unbelievable. It is. You are absolutely right. It is hypocritical in the extreme because these are exactly the sort of people who, when Frank Cho got busted, were like, oh no, creative freedom, he has the right to do what he says and you shouldn't... I actually had an argument on Facebook with a person saying that he just want to read superhero comics. He doesn't want to read social commentary and politics. And I'm like... Have you heard of Danny O'Neill? Have you ever in your life read a story by Ellen Moore or Grant Morrison or oh Peter Dave? Have you ever read Action Comics number one in which Superman beats a wife basher? Literally, Superman was the first superhero and the first social justice warrior. That was his self-defining moment. Superman has been a social justice warrior since 1930-whatever, right? 38! His first Come on. appearance! And these people are like, we want comics to be back to what they were. This is what they were. This is just a natural evolution of what they were. You scum. You scum. It made me so angry. Not just because of the hypocrisy and the chauvinism and the xenophobism and whatever. It made me angry because these people are idiots who rose up to defend the tradition they don't know. These people literally rage in the name of tradition they have no idea of. And you know what that proves to me? I'm going to sort of use their terminology against them. These are not real fans, Tom. There is no way that anybody who has been reading comics for any amount of time is going to stand up and say comics shouldn't be political. Freaking Archie is political, okay? What the hell are you even talking about? What kind of imagined utopia do you think you're talking about when you say comics didn't used to be political? It's like, no, they used to be. And you apparently weren't reading back then, but we were. They were like 90% liberal. Of they were so they were. liberal that Chuck Dixon felt, you know, oppressed by the industry because he was one of three conservatives at DC Comics at the time. Of course. And yes, standards change and what was once liberal is now pretty conservative because that's how times work. And these people saying, well, once we could draw women however we want, well... Since we've mentioned Darwin Cook earlier, when Darwin Cook revived the spirit, he made every effort to keep everything loyal to the source, except for one thing, right? What was it? 
Ebony. Ebony, right? Of because course. even Darwin Cook, the biggest Will Eisner spirit fan you could ever find in existence. Even he draw the line at saying, well, I'm going to stay loyal to a racist caricature because the times, they are a-changing and these people are afraid they do not understand. Exactly. These are people who were not around. They know nothing about the history of comics. They know nothing about the people who were involved in them. They don't know anything about politics and comics. Like They are taking their grievances with the society around them and projecting them into a product of pop culture that never agreed with them in the first place. You don't have to like Chelsea Kane's work. You don't even have to like her politics. You don't even have to like her. We reviewed Mockingbird number one. You didn't like it. I didn't. And it was fine because you reviewed the comic and you said, I don't like the plot. You didn't say, well, she's a terrible person and must be driven off the internet. You just said, I don't want to read her comics, which is fine, which is what they should have done. It is basic humanity and basic reading comprehension to be able to say, I like this feminist character and not this feminist character because of reasons, because this one's better written, because this one has a better artist, because I like the story better. There are subtleties in this supposed spectrum of political agendas that people with functioning brains can actually parse. And not be like, her shirt said feminist agenda, let's harass Chelsea Kate until she deletes her Twitter. It's mind-boggling. I do want to narrow this down just a little bit, because Jason Latour, writer of Spider-Gwen, he said this, and he was so right. He went on Twitter and he said, this is not just the fault of the readers. This is the fault of the so-called professionals who are enabling this behavior and who have always encouraged it. These are your monsters, Axel Alonso. Because when you get up at New York Comic Con and you say, I have nothing to do with social justice, you are encouraging men's rights activists and idiots like them to come out of the woodwork and believe that you are marketing things towards them. And then when Chelsea Kane has a cover that says something about a feminist agenda, she's somehow working against Marvel. And really, it says so much also, let's not pretend that Chelsea Kane being a woman writer wasn't part of this equation, because these so-called critics don't even have the balls to think about hierarchy. They did not write letters to complain to Axel Alonso. They did not complain to Marvel. They did not complain to Disney. When Jason Aaron wrote Thor, Goddess of Thunder, he got some letters of complaint, but that's it, you know. Exactly. He never got half of the amount of vitriol. They don't have the balls to go after the corporations that enable Chelsea Kane, right? Chelsea Kane was hired. This is the thing that they don't understand. Chelsea Kane was hired by Marvel. Those covers were commissioned for her series. Clearly, this means that the administration, if they were at it in any way competent, it would mean that they supported her. But of course, Axel Alonso is a moron, so now, that support doesn't count since, for anything. Since we've mentioned Marvel hiring Chelsea Ken, just a further point for this discussion, because people were saying online, well, if you like it, you should show your support and you should buy comics by female writers, because as Abe from the Comics General said, comics response to everything is you should buy more comics, right? And yes, Mockingbird didn't sell plenty. Marvel were well within their right to cancel it. I think they should have waited to see how the trade sold, because I think it's one of those comics that will sell better on trade. But whatever, Marvel is well within their rights. But keep in mind, most Marvel comics sell horribly. And, you know, nobody said when humans sell terribly, this proves that men's comics starring men shouldn't be sold, because there is no demand for them. Or even notice the odd and obvious fact that Marvel brought Chelsea Kane in because she's a New York Times bestseller writer whose book sells 
10 times the amount of the high-selling <laughs> Marvel book. You know, they are climbing to her, not the other way around. If female-led, uh, female-written, female-aimed Marvel titles don't sell, it's not because the audience isn't there. It's because you're not selling to this audience properly. For some reason, this audience would prefer to buy Rena Telegmeyer instead of your uh, Moon Girl. And it's not because the audience doesn't exist. It's because you're bad at pushing for that audience. Part of the problem is it's something that we brought up a couple of times in the past. It's not just that they're bad at marketing to audiences that they don't already have, right? Their whole thing is they can only sell to people who are already buying them. But it's also that they're putting out so much garbage these days that the books that in normal situations would be worth more attention are just getting drowned out. Like, you know, okay, so there's Moon Girl and Devil Dinosaur and there's Mockingbird and there's this new Iron Man. Squirrel Girl. And Squirrel Girl. And, like, there are these books that have a following and could expand that following. But the problem is, at the same time, you have five Avengers books, you have three Captain Marvel titles. And they all must tie into Civil War II, which ruins, ruins their leading female character. Yeah, not only that, but like, Civil War II is still ongoing. We're going to get to like Marvel's overall situation when we get to the previews for January. Not only just Civil War II, but like they, they're already talking about the next event. No, no, they're talking about the event after the next event. They're in the middle of Civil War II, and they're talking about the unspellable Resurrection, which is after Inhumans versus X-Men, which, by the way, thanks for spoiling your own event. Now I know who's going to win. Big news, right? I mean, listen, between you and me, were you at all invested in that conflict in any way? No, but I mean, at, least, <laughs> at least pretend that there's some tension. Why? Who cares? Nobody cares anymore. It's, it's like, like DC publishing the death of Superman, and then in the solicitation, you know, one week back. after, Superman returns. Yeah. No, no. Yeah, you know? Because people actually, I mean, the, the level, of, I think even Marvel understand at this point, the level of emotional investment that people have in their crossovers, which is zero. But to, like, sort of bring it back to Chelsea Kane and, and close the door on that, everything that she said was right. And when you think about it, you remember, this happened a couple of years ago, Tom, but you remember Marvel went to this convention and had this presentation where the only word that they put up in gold letters was King. You remember that? When they made a big deal of hinting that Stephen King was going to come write comics for them. Oh, oh, right. And it ended up being like his assistant was adapting The Dark Tower or something (laughs) like that. Marvel and DC and comics in general have a very, very weird relationship when it comes to established novelists. They courted Eric Jerome Dickey for that Storm miniseries, remember? When she was getting married to Black Panther? So they are always trying to bring in these people because their perception and the perception that they enforce is that, you know, novelists coming into comics gives comics legitimacy, gives them credibility. But then look at what happens with this novelist, right? She said in no uncertain terms, like, you know, screw Twitter. I don't need any of this. I'm going to go back to my best-selling novels. Y'all can sit here and starve. And she is not wrong for that approach. And quite frankly, I would love it if her next novel was like something about neckbeard trolls because let her take a shot at them. The powerlessness of these Twitter morons, right, is the thing. Because they saw Chelsea Kane and were like, it's and it's predatory behavior. You see the, the weakest run to the pack and you jump at them because she was not someone that the entirety of the Marvel... She wasn't used to it. 
Exactly. And the Marvel bullpen didn't exactly jump to her defense, right? Jason Latour did, and David Walker said, you know, don't mess with my friends. But Axel Alonso still hasn't said anything, because after all, he's not a social justice warrior. I think he actually responded with a supporting tweet, so... But is that not the height of hypocrisy to support her after saying that you don't see yourself as representing the values that she is putting across? And then this was Latour's whole thing, which I hadn't... When he brought it up, I hadn't even thought about it, but he is so right. When they do these things, they are sending a message that these are the values that they're supporting. And it is so telling that nobody went to Axel Alonso and said, oh, why is there a feminist agenda cover? What the hell's wrong with you? They attacked Chelsea Kane. For all that they hide their supposed intentions behind like faux intellectualism. It's like, look at the facts. Look at what they're actually doing and look at what they're not doing. Look at the fact that they don't have the tiniest amount of conviction it would take, go complain to Disney that one of their writers put a Feminist Agenda t-shirt. They will laugh you into the ground and then hire a couple of lawyers to jump I on I think you. we should... I'll just say this. If you don't want to read comics by progressive creators, you are not allowed... Officially, I'm laying down the law. You are not allowed to read any characters created by Jack Kirby, Greg Rocca, Gail Simone, Stan Lee at the time, yeah. Chris Claremont, hello. Chris Claremont, Peter David, even with the whole The Terrible Stuff he did recently. Peter David, you can read his comics if there's any Romani characters in there. Ellen Moore, Grant Morrison, Siegel and Schuster. Peter Milligan. Yeah, you're not allowed. The list goes on and on and on. By your own laws, you're not allowed. I guess you can stay with your Jack Chick tracks. Exactly. That's the one thing you're allowed to read. Jack Chick, and if you want some diversity, Dave Sim. <laughs> That's, That's it. it. That Even is... Bill Willingham will tell you to F off at this point. Well, would he? Mm, yes, yes. I don't know. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt, because you remember he had that whole thing at the panel. I'll give him the benefit of the doubt and say, like, he would not attack a fellow professional for perceived political slights, because even Bill Willingham has decorum. So, I think we'll finish with that. The Rage, uh, something else. Movies, TV, let's talk about that stuff. You know, there's Hollywood is doing all sorts of exciting things, let's talk about that for a bit. So the first Logan trailer is out. Those bastards, they use a Johnny Cash cover of Hurt to grab my attention. <laughs> That's emotional manipulation. That's unfair because you can put anything on the screen if you're using Johnny Cash's cover of Hurt and it will look good because it's Johnny Cash's cover of Hurt. <laughs> and you know, that's unfair. It's unfair, Sean. That's cheating. Maybe they should have used Bohemian Rhapsody. Uh. <laughs> okay, but here's the thing. You know, the trailer looks okay-ish. It's broadly based on the old man Logan, only in the furthest idea of it's the older Wolverine in the future doing the one less road trip kind of thing. Oh, well, hopefully without the hillbilly Hulk rapist. Yeah, yeah, there's no... Well, That'd be nice. there's no Hawkeye, and they're using a character who's obviously X-23, or at least a variation thereof. Yeah, no, she's she's Laura Kinney. They sort of confirmed that at this point. But it doesn't make a difference because it's still the same director from the previous Wolverine movie. It's still part of the continually and forever messed up Fox X-Men verse, which I have no idea what's the chronology there. You've mentioned The Crossing earlier. <laughs> they should bring in Corbusic to Avengers Forever, that stuff, because I have no idea what's going on in the X-Men universe. Is this a sequel to the previous Wolverine movies? You know, I don't even know the names because the first one was X-Men Origins Wolverine and the next one was Wolverine. Just the Wolverine and now it's yeah. Logan. So there's not even any numbering or sense. No, the next one's going to be called James Howlett. And, and all of them ignore one another. 
all of them completely ignore one another. It doesn't make any well, sense. Well, no, no. I think, okay, so this is me being an X-Men reader of many years, being like, I can fix this. Okay. You can I can Here's the thing. So, X-Men Origins, Wolverine, is completely out of the picture. It's ignored. Nobody talks about it because there was a different Emma Frost and the, the chronology was up. Like, that movie is non-canon. You can just sweep it under the rug. It's fine. Right? Yes. It can go with Pride of the X-Men. Into the basement. So that leaves... Okay, so you have the uh, original Singer trilogy, which Ratner interrupted. You have the the new trilogy. Now, the new trilogy, in the middle, you have Days of Future Past, right? Now, in Days of Future Past, you've got Wolverine, Magneto, and Xavier working together. They met at the end of The Wolverine. But it doesn't work because by the end of The Wolverine, he lost his bone claws and he still has them in the future version of Days of Future Past. Well, that happened in the comics too, though. Like, he lost the adamantium and then he got it back. Yeah, but they don't refer to it. Or even, you know, by the end of the third movie, Xavier is dead and then he's just brought back in the end of Days of Future Past with the same body. You know, No, they they explained that in, in The Last End. It was a stupid explanation, but they explained it. No, no, no. At the last end, he transferred his mind into a different body. Fine. Into his dead twin's body. What? Into his twin brother's body. No, it wasn't. I saw that movie. It wasn't his twin. It was a completely different person. And even if it was his twin, what are the odds of the twin having the same leg problem, you know? Still stuck in the same chair. Well, see, this is the point where you have to wonder if, like, intertextuality really does affect the way that you see things. Because I looked at that and it's like, yeah, of course, Xavier's mind, part of his injury is psychosomatic. So his legs do actually work. He just can't walk. No, his injury is people, somebody shot him in the spine, at least in the movies. Sure. But then like when he transfers his mind at the end of the last stand into this identical body, he really is kind of like a Cylon when you think about it. Oh, go for, go see a therapist. You're a telepath. Psychosomatism should be the least of your problems. You can go into your own mind and talk to yourself. It was something that Claremont actually did, like sort of the irony of, you know, the world's greatest telepath suffering from a psychosomatic injury. It did happen. But regardless of that, you can sort of work the timeline as though Wolverine, the the Japanese story, happens after The Last Stand because Gene is dead in that one. And then Days of Future Past happens. So the Wolverine sort of isn't canon anymore, but then, like, Logan still seems to be stuck in a dark future, so I don't know... You know, are, do you X-Men. are you planning to watch that movie in the cinema? Are you? Unless I get free tickets as part of my uh, movie critic job, no. I'm not going to pay money for this. I'll tell you what. As matters currently stand, right? Having seen the trailer, the trailer did get me interested in one particular aspect, which was it seemed to me like they're going with a very minimalist approach. This is Wolverine, Professor Xavier, and X-23 on a road trip. That seems to be the the sort of upper limit of what's going on here. It's not some huge, flashy, thousands of mutants running around, all this craziness. It's not that. So at the very least, you can say that it looks like it could be a different experience from what we've had so far. Now, taking into account that, you know, for all that I sort of like the Wolverine, I don't particularly feel like I want to watch it again. Like, it was okay, but that's, that's about it. As matters stand, I would not go see it in the cinema Unless I heard something, like, in terms of word of mouth that said... It's great. Not even it's great, but just that it's a little different. Because I think at this point, that's really what I'm looking for. With the X-Men line specifically. Like, I had my fill of the mutant battles. X-Men Apocalypse did, like, the flashy team-up with all the X-Men. That didn't save that movie, but I'm done there. I don't need that anymore. I don't need Wolverine doing the fastball special with Colossus. It's not necessary at this point. That ship has sailed. 
This is Hugh Jackman's last movie. If this really is some kind of Mad Max, last survivors of a dead superhero team trying to do something in the wasteland, if that's what this is, I'm curious. I'm potentially interested. But the trailer didn't make me go like, oh my god, I have to see this movie right now. It's not that. It could go either way. Trouble in the City of Angels. Tim Miller is leaving Deadpool 2 as a result of creative difference between him and star Ryan Reynolds. Uh, new reports indicate that Miller wanted Deadpool 2 to be a bigger budget movie, and he wanted a different actor to cable from the one they chose. Now, I have to ask, Tom, like, you're the movie critic here. So the issue here is that we have two very distinct arguments, right? Miller is saying they needed a bigger budget, and presumably because of the bigger budget, a bigger name for cable, right? Or he just didn't like the actor, which is fine. Also a possibility. Ryan Reynolds, on the flip side, is saying that the key to Deadpool 2's success is to stay on the same level as the first one, and not go all out with the budget, but rather keep it... You know, because the first Deadpool didn't have all that much by way of CGI. $60 million. It cost $60 million, which in terms of modern day superhero movies is catering budget. Yeah, and you could feel that too, right? It was very sort of gritty in the positive sense of the word. And, you know, a lot of practical effects over... There was basically just two action scenes. It's just They used the structure of cutting in and out of the main action scene in the bridge to, you know, fill up time with jokes and gags and character moments. Right. The actual CGI action stuff is, I think, just like 20 minutes of the movie. I think it's just Colossus and, and what? Like the falling... Uh, no, helicopter. and, you know, and Deadpool doing more the ninja things of jumping. That's a CGI. But there's very little action. They just cut back and forth to the action to make it feels more kinetic-y. So what do you think would be the better version of Deadpool 2? No, I, I have no idea. Now... I get why the studio went with Reynolds' vision, A, because he's a bigger name than Miller, and B, because, yeah, if our guy wants to do a cheaper movie, we're not going to argue with that. Right. Well, I mean, it's also like, when you look at the marketing engine for Deadpool, the first one, you can't deny that Reynolds went 150%. This is someone who... On the other hand, Tim Miller, when it comes to comic book movies, is one swing and one home run, right? Ryan Reynolds, when it comes to comic book movies, missed 15 times before he made Deadpool. Because he was in Blade 3, he was in X-Men Origins Wolverine, he was in Green Lantern. So when you're telling me, yes, we went over with his vision over Tim Miller's well, vision, I'm on. like, I don't know enough about wait, Tim Miller's wait, 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 previous wait. history. He's an animator. He did some very nice short films for Blair Studios. But hang on, you're saying Reynolds' vision here. I mean, in the other examples that you've cited, Reynolds wasn't like the director. I mean, uh, his no, role he, in Blade not, 3... He wasn't the director for Deadpool. And we'll never know exactly who did what and, you know, how important it was. But people saying that Deadpool is Ryan Reynolds' dream project, yes, perfectly fine, but... He dreamt it. Miller is director. Miller built it. First of all, there are some things that we know with certainty. We do know that this was a project that Reynolds was pushing long before Miller joined. From the moment that he did X-Men Origins, like this is something that he was constantly bringing up. And he- but consider the short test reel that leaked to the internet and brought the project back online, the one in the car. That's Tim Miller's work. Tim Miller created that scene. No, absolutely. I'm not discounting Miller's contribution at all. I'm saying, you know, the first movie succeeded on the one hand because what Miller did was so effective. And on the other hand, because Reynolds really went above and beyond the call of duty to promote it. I mean, look at his Twitter. The man basically lived and breathed Deadpool for years. Now, the thing is, 
Miller's argument, as I understood it based on these reports, is that the reason for the higher budget is so Deadpool 2 could potentially compete with whatever Marvel movie was coming up at the time. And that seems to me to be a problem, because even taking into account the division between Marvel and Fox and Sony and the scattered intellectual properties that happened at the end of the 90s, the idea of open antagonism between these two studios could be problematic, I think. Because if Miller was actively pushing to compete with Marvel, first of all, Marvel would crush him, right? Deadpool... I'm not sure. Deadpool made like $700 million. But it also wasn't in direct competition with any movie. It came out before Civil War. So it was perceived as its own thing. They didn't do the thing where it came out at the same time as Batman v Superman, and then you had that comparison. And you have Ben Affleck sitting and crying next to Henry Cavill. So... That didn't happen. The idea of getting more money so that you can take a shot at Marvel Studios, I can see why that would not be a great idea. If you want Deadpool to succeed as a franchise, you have to do the opposite. You have to stay as far away from comparisons to Marvel as you want and be your own thing. Deadpool wasn't like anything else that had come out that year or this year. It was actually this year. But Reynolds is saying basically more of the same, which is a bit of a, you know, stuck in a rut already. For a second movie, though? If this were the fifth or sixth movie and they were still doing that, I'd be like, uh, maybe try something new. But also, there's two levels to that contrast. On the one hand, you have the idea of more of the same would still be different from what Marvel is doing and what Sony is doing, right? Sony's going pretty big for Spider-Man. And Marvel, you know, you've seen the trailers for Doctor Strange. They're still going big. They're still going bombastic. Deadpool 2 being a smaller affair is a welcome contrast to that, I think. Fair is fair. I, you know, I don't, I don't know what to expect. We don't even know who the new director is, so it's just news in the wind. Who knows what days a future past will bring. I do like that, unlike the usual citation of creative differences, they actually explain what those creative differences are. It's just nice to know. You know what I would kill for? I would kill if they bring Edgar Wright and they're doing the movie version... Of the Deadpool story where he's <laughs> transplanted into the old Spider-Man comics from oh the 1960s. Oh my god, yes! If they're doing some agreement with Sonny and they put him in Spider-Man 3. Yes, yes! He's, he's like, why am I dancing? And you bring back Tobey Maguire. Who is that guy? This would never happen, obviously. Never. Uh, but, you know, I can dream. Well, like, no, it, the other reason it would never happen is because, you know, that's Sony and that's Fox. Yeah. But you could absolutely... Well, you know, Sony agreed with Disney, so, you know... Yeah. Who knows? It's not going to happen, but I'm allowed to dream, right? Well, listen, I mean, they are bringing in cable, so clearly they're up to something. Like, they have the some kind of idea. sensational character find of no year whatsoever. Uh, that depends on the casting, doesn't it? The men named after a type of rope. Cable. Oh, yeah. A cable between the past and the present. Uh, no, <laughs> that, that was actually how he introduced himself, I think, yeah. at one point. Or that, no, no, You know what that was? I think that that was Strife Strike File. No, no, no. That was later. I think it was Peter Milligan like making up excuses to why he's named Cable. So he's like the cable <laughs> linking the past to the future. But... And like, why a cable? You know, he's a shovel connecting the past to the future. It's, it's a good thing his name wasn't like Length of String. I'm Length of String. Actually, I it's a, it's a good thing his name wasn't Link, because Nintendo would have sued. But Link to the it, best. It does depend on the casting, though. Because, like, honestly, if they said, you know, yeah, okay, so Cable is going to be played by Ron Perlman. Tell me you would not want to watch that. Okay, yeah. Yeah, you know, like... He's a tall dude. Or Michael Ironside. There are people that they could cast in that role that would completely change my perspective of 
maybe they should have held on to Tim Miller. Like, because we don't know who they're looking at for this role. One very brief note, also not a lot of information, but interesting. Season two of Jessica Jones on Netflix oh, right, will right. have female directors for all 13 episodes. Go Netflix. That's all I have to say. Previews! Anything for Marvel. Oh, okay. Because I've got nothing. I've got nothing. Marvel is launching another new event called Monsters Unleashed. All right. I don't care. Moving on. There's a... Okay, mm-hmm, here we go. This goes back to the incompetence of editorial. There's another Marvel number one. It's called The Mighty Captain Marvel, this time by Margaret Stoll and Ramon Rosanas. And you remember that I had a positive reaction to when Fazekas and Butters started their run. I want to read this. I'm not going to. No. What's the point? Because... They will derail it. They will drop the ball. It's like it, it's sort of funny when you think about it. Kelly Sue DeConnick, to my memory, managed to do her entire run without anybody stepping on her. As soon as Carol Danvers became high profile enough that she went into the MCU, all of a sudden, every single goddamn event has to dovetail directly into her series, derail her storylines, and then somebody else has to pick up the mess. I don't know Margaret Stoll. I want to read a Carol Danvers book. I want to enjoy a Carol Danvers book. Marvel is making it impossible for me. So I'm not going anywhere near this for at least its first year of publication, if it even lasts that long, because I have no reason to trust them on this. And that okay. is all I have for Marvel. DC. Yeah. Okay. Now, the first thing we should notice is that holding the line at 299, done, dead, Lies. gone. Lies. No more. All of the new launches are $4 and up. For instance, the Commandy Challenge, written by Dan Abnett. Good. And Dan Didio. Nope. Not so good. With art by Dale Eaglesham, Keith Giffen, and Scott Kobolish. These are some good artists. Costs $5 for 40 pages. Now, the idea is fascinating in a train wreck sort of way. They're redoing the Commandy universe that Jack Kirby created. But every issue is a new creative team entirely. So the idea is every issue has to end with a big setup for the next issue. And the next creator... It's a round robin, it's called. Yeah, it's a round robin. But knowing DC, it looks like it's going to be a train wreck. And for $5... It's not even the issue that, like, knowing DC, it's knowing Didio. He could be okay when he's co-writing. Omek was fine. Hang on. What was the name of that series that he did? It wasn't 52 that people liked with Mark Wade. Countdown? That was the one. Well, he wasn't writing it. He was, I think, co-editing it, but he wasn't writing it. He was it. managing it. No, no. I'm not talking about his skill as a writer, non-existent though it may be. I'm talking about his ability to manage these kinds of ambitious projects where you're dealing with multiple creative teams on the same nominal title right 52 worked at the time but according to mark wade the reason it worked was because they were basically doing a lot under didio's nose because he hated so much of what they did and then countdown what was it countdown to destruction countdown to, to infinite crisis final countdown crisis to... countdown to final was crisis. it damn i don't even remember like it was five or six crises ago but it was countdown to final crisis and then when final crisis started grant morrison actually wrote within the comic book ignore countdown yeah that's how bad it was. So now they want to do like a round robin with Commandy, which to be fair, like, you know, Commandy is the sort of thing that quite frankly, I'm surprised didn't go to Young Animal because that seems like the sort of thing that would work for them. But no, just no. Whoever the creative teams are, and I'm sure that they're going to get some good ones if they can still manage to find talent willing to work with DC. But in order to achieve 
an ideal round-robin situation where every cliffhanger leads to the next one, you have to be willing to relinquish some measure of creative control so that your authors really can work together. That's how it works. And Didio is not that kind of administrator. He is the micromanager. He is the person who's going to be like, do this, do that, do this, do that, until like all enthusiasm just bleeds out of the project. So, no. Something I'm slightly more enthusiastic about, but not for the reason you might think. Batman 66 meets Wonder Woman 77, number one. <laughs> Written by Jeff Parker and Mark Andreco, Art by David Hahn and Carl Kessel. And the thing that I need to tell you, Tom, that I have not told you is that last night I watched... Batman Return of the Caped Crusaders, that's what my episode quote was from. Mm, Yeah, I've watched that as well. It was horrifying, but I couldn't look away. Same principle applies to this book. Because I was watching that and I was like, Julie Newmar, what are you doing? No! It wasn't very good, though. I would admit it got a chuckle out of me when Adam West started doing the quotes from the Dark Knight Returns for absolutely no reason. That movie had a bad anti-antidote. It wasn't very good. They had a sequence where Batman and Robin duel with utility belts. Bat handcuffs. Bat lockpick. Bat bomb. Bat shield. It was spectacular. <laughs> I didn't enjoy it. But, you know, I, I, get, I get why fans of the old series did. No, I suffered, Tom. Like, oh, okay. I, it was painful to me, but I could not stop. There's a comedy in it that on the one hand feels kind of vicious because I am laughing at them and not with them. And poor... Adam West and Burt Ward are like in their 70s and 80s. They really don't deserve to be mocked. But Jesus. Oh my God, that movie was insane. So back to the comic. So yeah, so now they're doing like Batman 66 meets Wonder Woman. And now Linda Carter's Wonder Woman wasn't like that. It had its camp moments, but it was never balls out insane in the way that Adam West's Batman was. Because Adam West's Batman was intentionally a comedy and... Yeah. And the Wonder Woman show was just camp because that was the period, right? And you have Jeff Parker, who excels at this sort of, like, mining for the retro stuff. This is what he does, and he does it so well. I'm sort of morbidly curious to see what would happen, because these things do not go together very easily. And what would Wonder Woman shows up in Gotham... And then Chief O'Hara with that racist Irish accent says, Faith in Bigora, she's so beautiful. What are they going to do? I have to know. I need to know what the plot of this story is. Now, speaking of treading carefully uh, next to potential uh, disasters, The Odyssey of the Amazons number one is a six-issue miniseries which features a new origin story, not for Wonder Woman, but for the Amazon side in this universe. And the reason I'm treading carefully, it's because it's written by Kevin uh, Grevue, who wrote The New Warriors for Marvel, the not very good run. I'm treading carefully because that man could kill me with his finger. (laughs) I mean, I can mock his writing, but tread carefully. Do we really need another origin? They just did a Wonder Woman origin story again. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about, like, Wonder Woman's problem with origin stories. By the writer of Underworld, of all things. Yeah. Well, here's the thing, though. I looked at this, and I... Thinking about it in purely objective terms, right? A big part of the problem with the Wonder Woman franchise and the Wonder Woman 
stories in general, is that so often there's just not a lot to go on when it comes to the Amazons themselves. And writers have tried to fix that. Gail Simone did that storyline about the circle, right, where you have these conspirators on Amazon Island, but the characters themselves were just not as well developed. Well, it's it's the problem with Wonder Woman in general, that every new creative team is rewriting her origin, her story, her powers, her personal... Everything about Wonder Woman is constantly being rewritten. All the damn time. But there's one difference here that sort of caught my eye, which is that if I understood the solicitations correctly, Wonder Woman isn't in this book. No, 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 yes. It's before Wonder Woman. It's before she was even born. So if the objective here is to tell a story with Amazons who are not Diana and doing something else with them, that is something that could potentially catch my interest. It really does depend on how these women are written, because the idea of Amazons going out into the world to find more of their kind and fighting Nordic storm giants could be amazing. It could be the sort of thing that Jason Aaron does on on Thor, right? But in order to get to that point, you do have to think of these characters as protagonists first and backdrops to Wonder Woman second which is something that so often they don't do with the other Amazons. Uh, anything else from DC? Two items. Okay. Again, ambivalence on both parts. But uh, So there is a Justice League Power Rangers team-up. Go, go, go. Go, go, Justice League by Tom Taylor and Stephen Byrne. It's mm-hmm. a six-part mini. I'll be honest with you, Tom, I'm kind of surprised that this has never happened before. Well, no, because they're doing Power Rangers comics right now. There hasn't been a Power Ranger comics for years. But it's not a crossover with the comics. It is, no? No. Oh, it's specifically with the TV show? It's the TV show because, first of all, we can't ignore the fact that Tom Taylor isn't writing the Power Rangers comics. So it's a different creative team. But also on top of that, the books have gone in a slightly different direction. I'm still sort of on the fence about them, but this seems to be taking the core team. You're teaming them up with the Power Rangers status quo rather than with the Power Rangers as they are. It's like whenever there was a crossover with the Hulk, it was always the green stupid Hulk. Even if in his own comics at the same time he was gray and smart and whatever. If this means that Lex is going to put on like a Madonna cone bra and be like, after 10,000 years, I'm free. I really like Tom Taylor as a writer because he's given, you know, ridiculous tests by Marvel and DC. You know, he's the one they test to write Injustice. A comic yeah. based on the single worst interpretation of DC superheroes ever. And he made a decent effort of it. You know, it wasn't the greatest thing ever, but it was a decent story. And he's writing all new Wolverine, a comic forever stuck between terrible crossover to terrible crossover. It works. No, you're right. I really like Tom Taylor as a writer. It does work. Uh, it raises sort of interesting questions about licensing and stuff like that, but I can't be bothered. I don't know if I'd read this, to be honest. Like, I'm not that into it, but... We'll see. One other item from DC is The Fallen Rises of Captain Adam number one. Now, I don't care about Captain Adam, but the writers are Carrie Bates and Greg Wiseman. Art by Will Conrad. Unfortunately, it's hard for me to deny that Wiseman's been in a bit of a decline lately. Kane and the Last Padawan did not turn out to be much... Yeah, the first five issues worked, but after that, not a lot to go. Starbrand and Nightmask was just a snooze fest from top to bottom. I would like for him to to bounce back, because I really do love his work, but I'd need to see something more substantial from him than just humdrum, mediocre stuff, because, again, like, it's Captain Adam. This is not a character that I have any attachment to. 
Uh, in the trade department, Sheriff Babylon, Volume 2, oh, collecting issues 7 to 12, written by Tom King, art by Mitch Gretz. It's great. It's awesome. It's amazing. Volume 1 was one of the best thing Vertigo published in years and years and years, and you should buy it. I mean, it's also worth noting, just as an aside, that as of the time of recording yesterday, the vision ended. Go, Tom King. The year of the king. Image? Image. So, we have a new Charles Soleil book. It feels like it's been so long since I've said that. Almost two days. <laughs> so, Curse Words number one, written by Charles Soleil, art by Ryan Brown and Jordan Boyd. So, Tom, you remember more of Soleil's bibliography than I do. Is this the first time he's done a magic book? Statistically not. <laughs> Simply by, you know, pure rule of numbers saying no. <laughs> so, an evil wizard is running amok in New York. I've always said that I like Soleil as a writer. I do. The fact that he's prolific, yeah, it is sort of a source of humor that he writes everything. But he's a good storyteller. My problem has always been that he just picks projects that I don't care about. I'm not going to read his Daredevil. I'm not going to read his Wolverine. I'm not going to read whatever he's doing now with the Inhumans. I don't care about the Inhumans, right? So he's getting a standalone book at Image that's at least worth a first issue. Because the man knows what he's doing. It's just been sort of, like, unfortunate that because of his status at Marvel, he keeps getting roped into, like, events, tie-ins to events, and crossovers with events, and events that are about the events. And I'm staying far away from all of that. So, curse words number one. Worth a look. A Land Called Tarot. That's a hardcover collection of the tarot serial running throughout Ireland by uh, Gal Bertrand. It's a silent fantasy story. It's very good. It's very beautiful. And if you're not reading Island, well, A, I hate you, and B, you should read this at least. Yeah, well, also, I mean, let's point out, Island is still in publication, issue 15 solicited. Yeah. Knock on the wood. One thing, the one thing that's odd to me is that they're doing a Land Coltero in a hardcover, because the other Island collections have all been regular soft cover trims, a bit larger than a regular trade trim size, and now you're, you're messing up my shelf, Brandon Graham. This is something that I'm not sure about, actually. Maybe you can tell me. The trade dress for the island collections, are they marketed as island colon this thing? No, no, no. They're just marketed as this thing. And Brandon Graham, just before we started recording, was on Twitter like, maybe I should add, you know, at least on the side from the pages of island to let people know that where is this coming from and where they could get more of stuff like this. Which... First of all, yes. Absolutely, you should. It's like but... when you buy a 2000 AD collection, you know, not in big letters, but on the side it says 2000 AD presents... Judge Dredd, Underworld, uh, Johnny Law, uh, Grey Monarch, whatever. Yeah, just so that you know that if you like this, there's more. I do think, though, like, this might explain the different trade covers, right? If Image is releasing these books not as products in the island line, but rather as graphic novels for all intents and purposes, right? Yeah, but they did, like, three graphic novels before, and they all had slim volumes, which are a bit larger than a regular trade, but not, you know, super oversized hardcovers. So this is just... Uniformity, I think, is important because it does help to support and create a brand. It would be important if the brand was defining itself as being a brand in itself. Brandon Graham isn't even putting, like, the island logo on these books, then... Well, he was just asking if he should, and their reply all around him was, yes, you should. He should, but then I guess on the flip side of that, the perception of Islands has always been that it's a platform for these creators. So if Daggerproof Mummy were to come out as a trade, I would expect it to be attributed not to Brandon Graham, but rather to the author. Hand washes hand, you, you should mention sure. wh- where you came from, you know, who are your daddy and mommy. 
potentially speaking, like Island could have just as easily been a line. It could have just as easily been an entire imprint for all the talent that they're bringing in. I mean, Brandon Graham has the personnel for that. But it's good that it is an anthology comic, and it's good that it's still coming out, and it's good that trades are emerging out of it. Whether trade uniformity should be a thing, I mean, it could have just as easily been a request from the creator. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, anything else? Well, one other item from Image, Loose Ends Number One. This is a four-issue mini by Jason Latour, art by Chris Brunner and Rico Renzi. Now, okay, this is a South Florida crime romance I don't particularly care. The, I'll be honest with you. The only reason I'm bringing this up is because Latour really impressed me with the whole Chelsea Kane thing. And I had sort of lost interest in Spider-Gwen. So, sure. I'll try it. Shoe volume 12. The last one. Mm, the last one. But... see, Okay, so we have like an interesting connection here. I'm sad, John. The last volume of Chew, right? The first item I have on Boom... Okay. ...is that the WWE book is launching... Written by Dennis Hopeless and Rob Thibodeau, with art by Edward Petrovich and Rob Gilroy. Hmm. So, one door closes, another door opens, but unfortunately... I, I do adore Rob Gilroy, to an unhealthy degree. But wrestling. It's, it's not so much as wrestling as, you know, it's he's not even the full-time artist. He's probably doing a backup strip or something. They didn't specify that, they just said Yeah, like, but once you have, like, two major artists on a book, it's usually one of them doing the main story and the guy who's mentioned... Unless it's, like, an anthology thing, where the comic is split down the middle between two stories. God, I don't even know. I mean, look... WWE Island, you know? Boom solicitation text was not helpful here, because they're calling it, and I quote, the most authentic line of ongoing WWE comics. Which, first of all, where's the competition for that? Second of all... I don't know if using the term authentic for fake wrestling is accurate. Authentically fake, as it were. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what this is. They announced this like months ago, and I still don't know. Dennis Hopeless is not some nobody they plucked up out of the streets. Dennis Hopeless had a career, and he has written books that I might not personally care for, but have gotten attention. And he's doing a WWE book. Which, as far as I can tell, seems to be treating the storylines that these wrestlers play out as if it's actually happening. Wow! Since we're mentioning smaller publishers, John, I should mention that Dark Horse has Slayer Repentless number 103, a three-issue miniseries written by John Schnepp with art by Gio Villoneva, based on the latest album by Slayer. That is hilarious. I understood nothing of what you just said. That is hilarious. The album is called Repentless because the writer of the lyrics was convinced that that was a real word. In That's it. not a word. That's <laughs> not a word, Sean. It's a perfectly cromulent word, Tom. <laughs> it's bigly. Bigly, B Tom. <laughs> Based on ideas by Tom Area. Now, I, I like Slayer. I'm a metalhead. You know, I love me some Rain in Blood, some Angel of Death, some War Ensemble. But why? Why? A three-issue miniseries? Five dollar each. Why? To whom the bell tolls, not for this. Well, listen, I, I guess for Slayer. And yes, I know it's Metallica. I don't no, need no, to know. No, no, but it. it's like, who would buy this? Because I have to assume, and I know, like, this is pure stereotypical, but I have to assume that most metalheads aren't reading comics? No, there's a, there's actually a very big... Is there? 
Yes, yes. Most of the metalheads okay. I know read comic. Okay, if there's a cross market there, then I can sort of understand the logic of saying, like, you know, let's do this thing. But the one, just... the one thing that should be mentioned is that John Schnapp might be an unfamiliar name to comic readers, but he is a scriptwriter for shows like Venture Brothers and Metal oh. Apocalypse. Oh wow! So these are funny shows. So that's a completely different tone from what the solicitation text was suggesting. Well, Metal Apocalypse, you know, is a comedy. I mean, it is a comedy. It's a ridiculous comedy. So, like, if they're taking that angle and not being like, the blood of the Dark Lord sustains me, worship Satan. Well, even even the biggest metal fans, you know, we recognize there is, it always borders on self-parody. The, the more extreme you go. So, you know, they, they take it seriously so we can laugh at them. That's about all I've got for previews. I mean... Uh, uh, I've got to mention two more. Free- One I've got to mention, I'm like legally and religiously bind to mention, Transformers vs. G.I. Joe, the complete collection by Tom Scioli, collecting all 30 issues by IDW, and it's the single greatest thing that humanity ever invented, and basically, after the last <laughs> issue was published, there is no reason to publish any other thing. There is no reason to create art, Sean. You know, human civilization has reached <laughs> its zenith. Which were Thomas versus G.I. Joe 13, so you might as well enjoy it. Tom, I will let you have it. The rest is silence. I will let you have that. And the odd thing is Box Office Poison Color Comics number one. Do you remember Box Office Poison? Yeah, I. The graphic novel from Top Shelf, was it? Alex Robinson, no? Yeah, it's a very good graphic novel. They're redoing it in single issues in color. Why? For $3.99 an issue. Now, what? I have this book in front of me on the shelf now. It's like a 500-page behemoth of a book. So if you're going to do what? the whole thing in single issues, you're talking about a 30-issue series at least? Tom, that doesn't make any kind of sense. No, this will cost you like 10 times the price of the trade. Who would buy this? Not even couple? that. This was written as a graphic novel. What are they going to do? Chop it up? It was not paced for that. No. Oh, my God. Are you kidding me? No, 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 no. What is this? Like, they're trying to do Love and Rockets, but in reverse? I'm assuming it's now in color because they're not saying new stories. And if it's a new story, they're not soliciting very well, you know? Let's be completely honest here, right? Box Office Poison is a great book. It really, really is. But I don't think that anybody is sitting at their typewriter like, Oh my God, please let Robinson write more Box Office Poison. The story's over. It's been done before in recent years. Like when they did the the Max in like new colors with Sam Kith, you know, saying this was what I wanted to do, but I couldn't at the time. It's fine because the Max was originally serialized, so they redid the serialization. But just chopping down a giant graphic novels into bits, that's just... For what? That doesn't make any kind of sense to me. I don't know what that, that kind of decision is. Like, oh, wait, wait. One more thing. Yeah. One more thing. Our cats are more famous than us, a Johnny Wonder collection. 416 pages of the Johnny Wonder webcomic by... Anata Hirash and Yuko Ota. It's a very good webcomic. And 40 bucks for 416 pages is very, very nice. I don't know what that means. It's it's a very good webcomic. You've talked up Edison Rex. I'm talking up uh, Johnny no, no, Wonder. That, that's fair. It's just, I, I've, like, I've never even heard of it. So it's something that I would like to look into. I do want to point out one thing. Like... We're not saying that this is all there is. There's still plenty of good content. Well, maybe not Marvel yeah. and DC, but it's just not new. Like, we're explicitly focusing on new releases. There's still, like, you know, Birthright, Descender, Saga, all the good stuff at Image. Yeah, and, lo- and lots of reprints still ongoing. Still good stuff, but we're focusing, like, on new releases. That's all. 
Reviews. Reviews. Take it away, Tom. Uh, Spell on Wheels? Sure. This is a new miniseries from Dark Horse Comics written by Kate Leth with art by Megan Levins. And it's a story about three youngish witches uh, in modern day like post-Buffy witches, Mm -hmm. as it were. And in the first issue, their house is robbed and many magical items are stolen. And they decide to go on like a road trip to find the perpetrator. That's the solicitation. That's also the plot of this issue. Isn't it, though? Pacing is not good on this one. No, it isn't. And, hmm. See, there's sort of a a bunch of things going on here. First of all, it's all right, I guess. But it feels sort of weirdly... On the one hand, it's low stakes in that this isn't a book that has any major dramatic instances. The witch's house is broken into by one of their ex-boyfriends who's working for somebody we don't know And who. it's odd because the book, you know, the final page is like, oh, you know, he was her ex-boyfriend all along. And yes, he said that. Like, yeah, we knew that. He said that like 20 pages ago, dude. Not, he said that and then we saw his phone background with a picture of the both two of them. Like, that's not much of a cliffhanger. So on the one hand, it feels low stakes. But on the other hand, sort of the prospect here is of three modern day witches going on a road trip. It doesn't feel fun. If you were going on a road trip caper with witches, you would think it would be something closer to the insanity of something like Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, right? Like, so you got to go completely over the top. Or talking about recent female-led comics, Kin and Kin. Oh, yeah. Well, I mean, listen, that was... You know what it feels like? It feels like one of those comics who's already the TV adaptations of themselves because you don't have to have high stakes, but in comics you can do everything and they're keeping it so ridiculously grounded and like... It's like they're working with the budget limitations, which they don't have. It's comics. And like I said, the pacing isn't right. This should start in media's rest, right? It's called Spell on Wheels. By the middle point and optimistically by the first page of this issue, they should be on the road. You know, start them on the road doing crazy hijinks and then flashback to wider on the road and continue with that. This takes all the time in the world to reach the point where no, they're going to be on because we've read the solicitation. The pacing is completely off because the whole feeling of the breakout, they sense that someone has broken into their home. And then instead of like addressing that situation, they talk about it and then they pack up their stuff and then they get in the car and then they drive to the car. And in the meantime, the guy's just ransacking room after room. And she's talking about how she can feel him in his room. And she that is not the point of the story. The point of the story is their belongings have been scattered in this online auction. They need to go get them back. We're never told why they need to go get them back. Well, you know, it's stolen magical items, they're dangerous, and we know there's this evil mastermind, but it's a bit of a Brian Bendix talky comic. Talk, talk, talk. No, do something. Talk, 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 and say nothing. It's a lot of empty dialogue. They communicate with each other, but personality-wise, Claire, Jolene, and Andy are ciphers. What do you have of them? Nothing. And I'm kind of surprised, because Leth doesn't usually drop the ball like that. I like her art more than her writing, but this is just... It's dull. It's just... Yeah. Boring. It's not ambitious is the thing, right? Like, it makes for a great elevator pitch, right? If you were sitting somewhere and you went to someone and said... Witches on a road trip. Witches on a road trip to get their stolen swag back. In a cool car. In a cool car. Why not, right? TV shows have run for 11 years on less on the CW. uh, I'll spoil the cliffhanger a bit. The cliffhanger is this... They visit an old guy and he opens the door and that's it. 
You know, it's not even like a case of, you know, he's opening the door and we can see on the wall behind him that by his shadow that he's some sort of a hidden demon monster Cthulhu thing. No, he's just an old guy opening a door. And these three girls giving him attitude, like, hmm, well, you took it. It's like, but then they're coming at this old guy like he knows their stuff was stolen. He just bought it at an auction. The one thing I did like is that the online magical exchange thing is called the Goblin Market. Yeah. That's, that's, a fu- that's a very funny gag, but other than that... Nothing grabbed my attention in this one. Would you come back for more? No, I, just, I don't care. Me neither. There was no hook here for me. Uh, Should we go on to Cave Carson? Yeah, that's really all I have to say about Spell and Wheels. Disappointment. Cave Carson has a cybernetic eye, number one, written by Jared Way and Jonathan Rivera, with art by Michael Aving Oming, and there's a backup strip called Superpowers by Tom Cioli. Ding, 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 ding. Well, yeah, so you know it's going to get at least an 8 from Tom, right? This is turning into a thing, though. One door closes, another door opens with you. Chew is finished, now uh, Gilroy is on WWE. Uh, Sean, introduce us to the mad, mad world of Cave Carson. Okay, so... First of all, I think we're committed at this point to reviewing all the new Young Animal titles. Yeah. And I'm okay with that. Fair shakes and all. That's that's fine. So, Cave Carson... Okay. Here's the thing about Cave Carson. First of all, I learned from my previous experience with the Young Animal books, and I went to the end of the book first and read the bio that they put up. It's a good thing that I did, because the issue explains almost nothing. And this is starting to be a thing with Way. Now, I did not realize this reading the book, but afterwards, you know, I did a little bit of Googling. Gabe Carson is a character that exists. Yep. This is not a new thing. No, no, I'm aware of Cave Carson. I was not. You did not tell me that this guy was canonical. It's so- it's one of those books in general. This book, unlike the other ones, is built heavily not into Vertigo, but into the actual DC oh, yeah. universe. The last page reveal is something that would make no sense like 99.99% of the readers. The last page reveal of the Cave Carson story made me laugh and laugh, and I assumed that almost nobody else got it. I had to dig... Yeah. Really dig to find out what that last page meant. Because I, I'm looking at this guy and I'm like, okay, that's not Cave. No. He doesn't have a son. Was it the boyfriend that the girl, that his daughter is with? Who? Why am I looking at this buck-ass naked guy? It's one of those books that only works if you already know what's going on. But there's a one-page cameo with a Will Magnus and the Metal Men? What? But I will say, unlike Doom Patrol, Doom Patrol didn't work even if you knew what's going on. You were like, why are you doing this with this stuff I know? You're treating some of it as actual, some of it is not. This one, because I know what's going on, for me it works, but I understand completely why for you, who's a newcomer to that scene, it's like, explain, explain, explain! They explained nothing. Now, we know from the comics this. Cave Carson is an explorer of caves in a world where, you know, there are hidden monsters and civilizations. You know, he met mole people and such. He had to retire after something happened to his wife, Eileen. Mm -hmm. And he has a daughter in college. And he also has this weird eye, which he got God knows how, which allows him to scan information. But it's either malfunctioning or it shows him things that other people aren't supposed to see. Like he's seeing ghosts and goblins and spooks. And on that level, I will say that at the very least, the book communicates its core premise in a more direct way than Doom Patrol. Because... Like, again, what I did here was I started with the bio. So the bio tells you about Cave Carson's backstory, which is a good thing because the book never does. 
the entire issue, like, they sort of talk in a roundabout way about what Cape Carson was I, doing. I thought they explained enough, but again, I came in from knowing stuff, already. so... Yeah, I was like, I didn't know this guy from a hole in the ground. I actually thought it was an original concept. But in any event, I will say that I liked it a little bit more only because, like Shade the Changing Girl, I can see where they're going with it, right? I can understand sort of the overall plot and the overall forward thrust of the story. You know, the main thrust of it, the spiritual main front of it, is a guy dealing with loss, right? You can connect to that. Sure, and he has to go back to something, to a place that he visited before that is painful for him now because of, like, past memories. The literal dark cave of his mental back matter, right? Yeah. There's a tentacle monster in the middle of it for some reason, but we'll let that slide. Now, I do want to point out that the art is actually pretty impressive for Weeming, but I might be grading on a curve here because I'd gotten used to a certain drab and lifeless tone on Powers. Like, last time we talked about Powers... That was one of the earliest episodes, I think. Yeah, but Weeming was sort of like... Uh, it, it was just like everything was It was shadows. once, you know, so fresh and new, but once you get used to it, it's like... It hasn't... In Powers, at least, you know, the Powers I've read, it hasn't evolved much, but here he's doing... It's much better work here. There's so much more color. Well, yeah, uh, now we should mention there is coloring by Nick Filardi, so maybe he's doing, you know, the heavy lifting on it. Could be. If so, then that is a a good combination to have, because Wiming's art, first of all, it has this cartoon vibe that for Cave Carson specifically, I think is appropriate, because it really does make him look like sort of a different version of Johnny Quest. The less humiliating version of something like Venture Brothers, where he's now outside on the outskirts of all that crazy 1960s science fiction stuff, and you know his daughter is basically saying, I want to get rid of this, but none of them can. But in Venture Brothers, it's all about them being pathetic versions of the glorious past, and here this is more like, no, they, they were used to be good, they just don't want to do it, but somebody's forcing them to it. Yeah, and it's also like... Venture Brothers, as far as I know, doesn't really go into the whole idea of they don't want to do this thing anymore because something happened. Whereas here, like, you know, Cave feels the loss of his wife, Eileen, very deeply. So her absence connects to his whole thing of like, you know, I don't want to go back down to that world anymore. But something's happening. Like somebody from that world comes to him and says, we need you again. That makes more sense to me than whatever the hell happened in the first issue of Doom Patrol. Even now, looking back, I can't reconstruct the plot of the first issue of Doom Patrol, but I feel like I could explain this to someone. Shawarma, Sean. Yes. Delicious. But, as you pointed out, Tom... Yes. There's a Tom Cioli backup strip. Superpowers. It's actually two stories in three pages, which is pretty impressive. Tell us of your love of Tom Scioli, Tom. Uh, the first two pages are a new Wonder Twins origin story, which basically rebuilds them as the lost prince and princess of this planet, which is two planets smushed together. Which is such a Scioli thing to do. <laughs> which The planet XXOR, two X's. Mm-hmm. It's a very humanish interpretation, I'd say. It's almost like Eternia kind of thing. It does have that impression, right? They're riding on flying cats and... and Flying you know, blue cats with horns, like flying tiger corns, as it sure. were. Sure. Which is a great visual. Why not, right? And the second strip is uh, Bad Girl versus the Joker. So let me ask you something, because I really had some problems here. Is this meant to be the same story? No, I think it's two different stories. 
because I'm reading these three pages and it seemed to me like the idea was that the Wonder Twins get in trouble and then they go to Earth and help that girl? Maybe in the future, but right now it's it's like completely different stories. Which seemed really weird to me. Well, it, it's, it's wonderfully weird to me. It's not really weird. It's wonderfully... I love it, Sean. And yes, I'm biased towards Tom Scully because, again, he is the light and love of my existence. But, for instance, I really love how his, you know, very precise style is shifted just a bit from what he did before because when he was doing, say, Godland, it was pure Kirby, uh, you know, worship. And the, then he did Transformers vs. G.I. Joe reviewed where he was doing them as action figures. Everybody was, you know, very blocky and moved, you know, very stiffly. And now he's doing this, and, you know, it's still recognizably Tom Scioli, but just by, you know, doing the colors a bit more lushly and, you know, changing the facial, uh, you know, the facial ticks of the characters, it's suddenly something completely different. It's a more European fantasy verse type thing. I love it. I think it's beautiful. And I like the way that he's basically giving you, well, not a complete story because it's to be continued, both of them, in two pages and then in one page. Tom Scioli does more in one page than most artists do in a whole issue. Well, see, this would be the part where I would disagree slightly because I do think that there's a small pacing problem here, which is simply that overall, the two pages start uh, the Wonder Twin story but doesn't do anything with it. Like, having established them as characters, we don't see where he's going with no, this. No, 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 he's, same... he's basically saying that their powers are like, and, you know, the powers that they will grow to have are treated as a disease here. It's like, oh, you're burning up. Your skin, you know, your skin is starting to grow scaly, and she'll be the one who can change into animals, and you're sweating up, and, you know, he'll be the one who turns into water. And that is a good starting point. Yeah, well, <laughs> two pages, Sean. Well, no, because part of the problem here is that it's not clear to me what this is. Is this a backup strip that's going to be running in all the issues of Cave Carson? Yes. And it's a complete story? Is it a gag? Because you could go either way with Tom Scioli, right? Like, this could just be something where... Uh, it's an ongoing backup strip. I love it. I think it's wonderful and bizarre and everything that's good about superhero comics. But I will say this. Cave Carson, I think I'm going to have to trade wait on that one. So that unfortunately means to me that I'm going to have to wait for for there being enough superpower strip for them to do, like I guess, a deluxe hardcover of that. Probably. I would rather read just a Tom Scioli story. As far as I'm concerned, you know, even <laughs> though it's just three pages, the rest of the DC Universe is the backup strip for superpowers, as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> they have good creators there. I... I just, this is what I want for my superhero comics, Sean. The sense of wonder and grandness and, yeah. you know, stuff happening. Bad girl riding a bike, you know, fighting the giant Joker mobile. Young Animal hasn't quite gotten there yet, but, I mean, with Cape Carson specifically, I think I'll give it another issue. Because I am also, like like you, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of on the fence here. I am not as huge a fan of Tom Scioli as you are, but I do agree that he does bring something to the table that no one else in the industry really does. In, specifically in terms of the material that he covers. So I would like to see more from him. I mean, hell, listen, if Gerard Way could get Tom Scioli to do a backup strip, just give him a book. Young Animal, just come up with something. Give him some kind of 1960s throwback. Let him do Challengers of the Unknown. Whatever. He already promised there's going to be Challengers of the Unknown and Superpowers. Well, there you go. I don't know. Like, do something. Give him his own title. Our last number one. Yes. Well, not exactly a number one. So we're talking about the Giant Days Holiday Special. Number one. <laughs> it says number one on the cover. It does, but there's not going to be a number two unless the holidays come back around again. I don't know. 
Uh, this is by John Allison, art by Lisa Tremaine. Backup strip art by Kenan Grail and Jeremy Lawson, because there are two stories here. Tom, I love this book so much. <laughs> Sean, it's, it's lovely, isn't it? Daisy is Uatu, and I am so happy. <laughs> I love this book so much. The idea of the much. main story here is that it's a what-if story, as in, what if the three roommates, Esther, Daisy, and Susan, didn't become friends on the first day of college because, you know, they didn't get to meet in the exact right order, and lo- sort of extrapolate from that the what-if of the giant days verse. And like you said, Sean, it's, it's great. It is a beautiful and horrific domino effect, <laughs> is what happens. What, with Daisy as like the watcher narrating the whole thing. And uh, No, no, not Daisy. Daisy! Daisy! I'm sorry. <laughs> Esther becomes friends oh. with a bunch of, you know, like rich girl, mean girl, snob clique. And the domino effect ruins the whole dormitory and college. Yeah, and it, it ends with a bunch of trashy mean girls dancing on a giant platform that says awful people. Now, there is one thing here, though. Like, this is what I really love. What this issue crystallizes for me is something that Allison does so well, which is that everyone in the main cast, including the side characters like Ed Gamel and McGraw, They're part of the ensemble. When something happens, it sort of ripples out and affects all of them simultaneously. So you have this alternate timeline in which the girls were never friends. Ed ends up being Susan's boyfriend, but sort of deeply unhappy because, you know, it's Susan and she has She's a very, super dominating and he's she like... She has a very dominating personality. And you have McGraw who never actually gets back into his fight with Susan, but sort yeah, of becomes friends. Yeah, so he's friends. like a loner, you know, just walking around steaming throughout the college. And Esther just becomes like this worst version of herself. And it's brilliant. It really is. It's like he has a master... I mean, again, like these are his characters. It shouldn't come as such a surprise. But he has a real mastery of writing all of these characters and maintaining the connections and the dynamics between them, even when it's something as crazy as alternate reality, cosmic daisy, <laughs> telling us about... What if the girls weren't friends? It would be the worst thing ever. Now, Lisa Tryman, uh, back to drawing the actual content. After She left after issue six. She's only doing the covers, and she's an animator by trade. So, you know, it's obvious why she would prefer to work in the animation trade. I missed her so much. Some of the things here literally couldn't be done by a lesser cartoonist. The part where uh, Daisy... Drinks the fir- you know alcohol for the first time in her life. This is fighting juice. <laughs> it shouldn't work. It's like it's it's an over the type take on a story that was up until that point fairly grounded. But Tryman sells it. She sells yeah. the reaction shot. And Sean, she only do like seven comics in her life, right? Giant Days one through six, and this one. And I'm ready <laughs> and willing to declare that when it comes to cartooning, she's the greatest of her generation. The greatest. I would take her over Roger Language, even. I would say that. Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, uh, to be completely fair here, I do want to point out that uh, Max Saren, you know, the person who is uh, drawing... The regular series for nowadays. He's doing a good job. I yeah. don't want to disparage him and make it no, seem no, that, no. like, Lisa Termin leaving was the worst thing that ever happened in Giant Days. She has a very, very, very unique style and a very distinct style and a style that works so perfectly with the way that Allison writes this series... At the same time, though, Max Saren is good, but when she comes back and does something like the holiday special, you suddenly realize, like, hmm, 
you know, it's not quite the same. He still does a good job, but he cannot compete with it's her. like whenever there's you know a grand morrison project with frank quietly and somebody else replaces him even if some that someone is great even if it's andy clark or cameron stewart you're like yeah you're good but it's frank quietly you said if somebody replaces frank quietly yeah when somebody... there you go <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah you know you brought in cameron stewart cameron stewart is a great artist but frank quietly is frank quietly and lisa trayman is lisa trayman None compare. So I will say the one bad thing about this comics, the one single thing, it's an eight dollars for forty eight pages, which yeah it is. It is, but it's Lisa Tryman, I'm sorry. If they would have asked me for a dollar for her art page, I would give it and I would pay. I need more. I wouldn't go that far, but I would say that it's also I think indicative of you know the fact that Giant Days is now nineteen twenty issues in, right? Something that started as a... Six-issue mini, and then 12-issue maxi. 12-issue mini, and, like, we are still here, and it is still good, and everything is still working so well with this creative team and with these books that, you know, it's, it is a testament to a real success. It's one of those rare series where even 20 issues in, I could give someone issue number 20 and say, read it, and they will enjoy it, even if they don't know all the history and the context, because every single issue works as a comedic beat by itself exactly nothing is ever wasted there is never anyone you know well i have to read issue 19 because it's part of a storyline no every issue stands by itself and it's something that so many comics creators can't do won't do choose not to do because they're lazy and john ellison and lisa tryman and max serin showed them up they come in drop mic this is how it's done this is how you do a monthly series you make every issue worth it and every issue worths it. We should not forget that John Allison came from the field of webcomics, right? This is a man who knows how to do every strip, every daily four panels have to have value because your readers are coming back on a daily basis. So I'm not surprised that he manages to make every single issue of Giant Days appealing and accessible at the same time because this is his bread and butter. This is what he knows how to do. Also, like I said, backup strip by Ken Grail and Jeremy Law, art by Ken Grail and Jeremy Lawson with Esther's family, Christmas adopting a fish person. Yeah, which is, I mean, that's Esther in a nutshell, really, <laughs> when you think about it. Like, what else would she have possibly done with her time? Fantastic special. I am still such a huge fan of this book. I still enjoy it on a regular basis. I still strongly, strongly recommend it because it is so unlike other books that are coming out at the time. You don't see a lot of stuff out there that is on this level consistently. Now, this is the best comic of the week, and I'm not just talking about stuff we reviewed. I'm talking about this whole week. And this is, <laughs> and this is the week where I checked. They also released Worlds of Adina, the web use library by Dark Horse, and the reprints of Prince of Cats. Ah. So, you know, this is a very good week for comics, but this thing is no, like... Allison still wins. Yeah, yeah, he wins. You know, Congratulations. The one thing I might like more than Tom Scioli. Might. <laughs> Ooh, I praise indeed. <laughs> yes. Like, what would you do if Rob Gilroy got into a feud with Tom Scioli? Jeez. Ooh. I don't know. I'd we better to, hope those two I'd never to, get like I'd a Twitter fight. Myself, so one of them would follow one and one would follow the other. Because I can't, it's, it's a Solomon's choice, right? I can't, I can't. Don't make me do that, Sean. Well, listen, they seem like perfectly pleasant people. I'm sure it'll be fine. So our major trade review the main course of the smorgasbord, as it were, is 
Though we filled up on the Giant Days bread, so we're like... Oh, listen, I mean, nothing could really compare, right? But, so let's talk about Wonder Woman, The True Amazon. This is by Jill Thompson. It's a graphic novel, if I'm not mistaken. Now... It's a collection of a digital first um, ah, series. Ah, okay. See, this was the thing that was not clear to me, because in terms of its release, it was presented as a graphic novel. Now, nowhere there did it say that it was a collection. My assumption was that this was like an Earth One sort of thing. It's a digital but it's not. series. It wasn't even called uh, Wonder Woman True Amazon originally. There was a different name. It's like, was you know, Wonder Woman, A Princess Learns, something or other. Uh-huh. Okay, well, I was not aware of that at all, so... Neither was I until I, you know, read about it. Okay, so this is another take on Wonder Woman's origin. Now, this sort of connects to what we were talking about before, right? Like, it does seem, especially today, that that's the only story anyone ever tells about her anymore. It's always, you know, Wonder Woman's origin, and here's a new take on Wonder Woman's origin, and here's a retcon of Wonder Woman's origin, and here's the secret story you never knew that's connected and adjacent to Wonder Woman's origin story. There's this direct competition between her and the Legion of Superheroes of the most rebooted concept in the history. But at least the Legion of Superheroes managed to get, like, a couple of stories out that were not origin stories. Like, when you talk about the Legion of Superheroes, I guess... I mean, people remember the Great Darkness saga, right? Yeah. Okay. That's not an origin story, though. (laughs) It's, like, all of her stuff. Because I was thinking about it. Raka, as far as I know, what's he doing now? I haven't read that. I'm trade waiting on those. But, you know, it gets good reviews. It does. But I think it is also dealing with, like, her backstory. No, 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 wait, wait. I remember. Raka is doing, like, two things at the same time because it's, like, odd-numbered issues are, again, a Wonder Woman year one sort of thing. But even-numbered are something different. Like, a future story. So Retelling her origin is still part of it. And then Azarello had that whole thing where, like, she was actually a daughter of Zeus and not really made out of clay and da 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 and before that, JMS and his alternate universe nonsense. Right. So she does seem at the moment, especially after like Batman v Superman, which surprisingly did not do that. But we know that the movie is World War Two, right? Or World War One, one of the two. So it's strange. I can't quite figure it out. Like, I'm not sure why this is. I think I have an explanation to the problem with Wonder Woman. And I think it's this. The original concept of Batman and Superman works as it is throughout the ages. You know, Batman, his parents were killed and he's looking to avenge crime. Superman, he's got all the power in the world and he seeks to do good. You know, he's a strange visitor coming to our planet to save us. The original concept behind Wonder Woman, you know, the William uh, Moulton Masterson. Marston? Yes, it's just so weird, even at the time and definitely today, that you can't go with it, right? So everybody's still struggling to find... The or Wonder Woman story that's not that and nobody can decide so whenever you have a new creative team they're just like shifting it either a lot or a little so Perez did his thing and then Jimenez uh, did his thing and then Simone did her thing and Rocca did his thing but none of them have stuck that's the thing that I don't understand because whenever someone else is coming like well yeah but I you know it was great what you did before was great but now I want to do this story first of all let me give credit where it is due because The True Amazon, right? This book by Jill Thompson. It is another rehash of Wonder Woman's origin. As far as I can tell, there is one major deviation in the end that I haven't seen in other versions. We'll get to that in a bit. But I do want to give her credit on this. First of all, her prose is beautiful. The art is lovely. It looks good. And it reads well, too. It flows like sort of this... It's a very... The problem I had with this is this book 
isn't meant for me. This isn't an all ages comic. This is like this is a children's comic. Is it? It reads to me like something I would give, you know, happily give to my older nephews for like my eight and ten year olds. Very much a children's story for me. Uh, Jill Thompson, you know, even her art when she's doing the more painted lofty things, it's like the visuals, the lovely visuals that you would see on a higher hand children's book publication. But see, on the other hand, like when you think about Thompson's work in general, right? This is, she also did like the little endless. She does children's stuff. She does adult stuff. And, you know, when you read the story, Thompson doesn't just take Greek iconography like so many writers do. This is actually a proper Greek tragedy, right? Diana wants to impress this girl and her hubris causes her to unknowingly sort of cause catastrophe and destroy exactly the thing that she wants to get. And her punishment is exile. Yeah, but they're smoothing the edges. Like, you know, they're mentioning Zeus, but they're not telling exactly what Zeus did to mortal female. And the the big overall story here, this version at least, is that Diana, like in the other Wonder Woman version, is born out of clay. You know, her mother makes her. And she's brought to life by in a very charming scene. In a very, very charming scene, she's brought to life. But in this version, she's a spoiled little brat because since she's, you know, naturally gifted at everything and she's... I assume the only, she's the child of the queen, all the Amazons fawn of her, yeah. and she gets this, it's like, that's what I said, it's like a children's story, it's like, if you get everything, you become spoiled, and you know, you shouldn't be like that, it's a very moralist story. With the, with one significant deviation, which is that, and this was the part I found really interesting, right? They cast Diana as sort of this petulant, spoiled brat, which as far as I know, is new. Because she tends to come up, when they do her origin story over and over again, she tends to be like, she was always noble, she was always heroic, she was the best of the Amazons without having to prove it. And here, Thompson does seem to be suggesting like, no, if you raise this girl in a position of like the princess where everyone has to worship her, she would become a spoiled brat. And then... Her moment of, like, growing up is when that entitlement, that feeling of, you know, she deserves everything so she can do what she wants, backfires on her in a really big way. And I like that. But it's the sort of thing where I'm not sure that that would come across for children readers. You know what I mean? I think it does. I think they can under... You know, I'm not talking about, like, four-year-olds, but I think they can understand what's going on. Because the thing about the Greek tragedies is that, yeah, you have the chorus, right? But the chorus will never be like, what she did was bad and you should feel bad and you shouldn't do this thing. It's like, look at what she did. She had this coming. And oh, isn't it sad that she couldn't have stopped it? Most interesting thing about me is really, like we've, which is also the problem of, you know, perpetually rewriting Wonder Woman it casts her becoming Wonder Woman going to man's world as a banishment. Not as a, she left the world because there was trouble and she needed to save man's world, no. Or worse, she left the world because she met a man and she really wanted to get on top of that. She was cast away because her arrogance caused, you know, bloodshed and death. Yeah. And it's just... It's a better story. It's a better story, but here's the thing. It's not going to be followed on, right? It's not the version that Raka is doing. This is the thing that really frustrates me with this character. This is a story that screams for a sequel, because if you're not doing a sequel, well, what have you done here? I finished it, and I was like, wait, what? This is the end? A, because it's a very swift read. It's a bit $20 hardcover, and it's 130 pages, but I've read it in like 40 minutes or less. Yeah, it's because like Thompson's, uh, her prose flows very easily. Like, it's, she doesn't waste time with yeah, a lot of like, like most of the pages are like two or three panels each on the one hand 
I appreciate it as a version of Wonder Woman's origin that I find compelling. But you're right. Like, first of all, it has nothing to do with what Rucka is doing right now. So none of this, like the, any pathos that she gets out of this story that could have made her a more interesting character going forward isn't going to happen unless Jill Thompson really has been hired to do another one, which I haven't heard anything about. So I don't know. I understand, in theory, the value of this book is that it tells a good story. On the most basic level, like the secret history of Wonder Woman is that she is the classic Greek victim of her own pride and of destiny, right? Like, because when you read it again, like if you read it a second time, you see how there was no way that this was going to end any differently. Like it was all written in stone. And that sense of destiny and ironclad fate is something that's very strong in the Greek antiquity, so to speak. So that part I liked a lot. The problem is, you're right, like, her character development goes up to the point where she has her moment of catharsis, and she has her moment of epiphany, and she understands what has happened, and she has been exiled as punishment for her crimes, and she wants to atone. This is also, like, a key thing, because if she had been flippant at that point, she would have been a villain, not yes. a hero. But she is repentant, and she does understand that she made a terrible mistake, and her pride, and then the book ends. And I feel like, on the one hand, it's satisfying. You know how Superman had, like, 50 versions of those origins? But everyone has, like, their one origin story, right? Well, yeah, the Grant Morrison, Frank Whiteley, four panels, eight words. The only one that you need. There's that, but there's also, like, a lot of people still look at Superman Birthright as being, like, the one that they want to keep. You know what I mean? Everybody has their own thing. So, like, on that level, this functions. Because the thing is, you could take this book... And slot it into any version of Wonder Woman that you've seen and it'll fit. This one? This one. I disagree because it doesn't lead to any version of Wonder Woman as, you know, the banished princess who has to prove herself to be worthy of the paradise she helped to not destroy, but, you know, defile. Yeah. Is not anything that leads to Rocca's version, uh, Simone's version, definitely not Ezarello's version, even JMS's version. So it's a build-up to a version of Wonder Woman that doesn't exist. And the problem, like we said, it would have been fine if Wonder Woman was this thing that everybody knows uh, in the general sense. But like we've said, she's constantly being rewritten. So since it leads to no particular version of Wonder Woman, Birthright, which is, you know, it's an okay story. It's not something that I adore, but it's okay. It works because, you know, Superman is Superman is Superman. Even in the most terrible rewrites, you can sort of say, well, yes... He's recognizably this thing that I know. He's Clark Kent. He works at the Daily Planet. There's Lex Luthor. There's Lana Lane. There's Lois Lane. There's Perry White. There's Jimmy Olsen. You know, you, he's a strange visionary. He has these powers. But Wonder Woman? Can you actually, you as a comic reader, not even Joan Q. Public, can you say anything about the generic Wonder Woman, the one that is the Ur Wonder Woman? Well, I could, but it would be completely subjective. That's the problem. Is Etta Candy important? Yes. Is she part of every iteration? Was she in the TV show? I don't even remember. See, this goes into the problem also of prolification. That, is Diana I mean, Prince Wonder Woman in hiding? Or does everybody know that she's Wonder Woman? I don't know. Here's the problem, though. I see what you're saying, but there's a catch here. And the catch is when we're talking about multiple interpretations of characters, like you're saying Superman is Superman is Superman, but let's not act as if the Christopher Reeve Superman movies and Smallville had all that much in common, even in terms of like, yeah, you had the basic story of he's shot from a Krypton, but let's not forget that Smallville ran for 10 seasons with like 
clones and phantom zones and Jor-El was still alive. Yeah, but what I'm saying is this. If, if, even if you take the worst interpretation of Superman, Man of Steel, and you give someone who watched Man of Steel birthright, they, it, it would seem odd in tone, but they would still recognize it as, oh, okay, this leads up to this. This is the same character. If you give someone who, say, watched Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman in Batman v Superman, this comic... You see, that specifically, I think so, but only because this goes to, like, what I was saying, the core problem here is that there haven't been enough multimedia versions of Wonder Woman to get to the point where, like, with Batman, you remember, like, the Batman animated series was followed by the Brave and the Bold, and then the CGI Batman, and then they did the other thing, like... And like a million TV movies. Exactly. There have been so many versions of that character in other media, not even just in comics, that it's like, okay, so Michael Keaton or Christian Bale, or Ben Affleck, or Val Kilmer, or George Clooney, or Adam West, right? Whatever. One of them is somebody's Batman. So on that level, it's sort of fine. Here, it's like, okay, you've got Linda Carter, and you've got... Gal Gadot. So when you ask me, like, is Etta Candy important? My instinct would say yes. But as far as I remember, she wasn't in the 77 show. And by the same token, I don't know if she's been mentioned for the Gal Gadot thing. Thompson's book could be, well, Thompson's book could have been a movie prequel. Because Batman v Superman doesn't actually tell you anything about Wonder Woman. This could have been her. But the problem is, when the trailers came out... Everybody saw, like, okay, so she is on the mascara and she meets Steve Trevor, right? Chris Pine's character on the beach and she falls in love. And it's like, okay, so we're doing that. So it's not even... I'm sort of in two minds about this book because, like you said, it's it's lovely and it's readable and it's beautiful. And it is an interesting story by itself. But because because it's Wonder Woman, like, if this was, I don't know, like, an Archaea book about, you know, Amazon Princess Diana, who's not Wonder Woman... I think I would love it more because then I wouldn't have to do this strange arithmetic in my head of, wait, is this, is it connected to this one? Simply by making it part of this convoluted wonder mess. But see, I would disagree with that because I think a lot of the power in this story comes from the fact that, like I said, the thing that Thompson does here that's so innovative is that instead of just taking the image of Hercules and the image of the girdle and the image of Pegasus and like all of these icons of Greek mythology that we've already seen regurgitated 15,000 times in Wonder Woman books. She takes the structure of a Greek tragedy and applies it to Wonder Woman specifically. If this were someone else, you wouldn't feel that sense of she's actually playing out the role of a, a protagonist of like something out of Sophocles. You wouldn't feel like she's the new Antigone or, or whatever. So... That's the thing that I think adds a little bit of extra value where you wouldn't get that with an original work. Because in an original work, it would just be like, she's this Greek woman, she's a Greek tragic figure, hubris, the end. It's like, okay, that's sort of, that's expected. That That's just what you do. Applying it to Diana specifically is something that, as far as I remember, hasn't really been done before, even though it seems like such an obvious thing. Like, this would be a great origin story for a version of Wonder Woman who doesn't exist, as far as I know. Yet, at least. Which, when you consider that they have, like, Earth-1, and they have, like, all of these multiverses now, you would think that somebody would do something with it. Like, this could have been... Hell, this could have been the origin of, like, Wonder Woman bombshell. I don't even know. Like, you could have found something to... to sort of link into it, but... As a standalone, I think, like, it works as a, as a standalone book. I enjoyed it as a standalone book. But I do feel that missing bit of she puts on the costume at the end. 
and she leaves the mascara, and that is it. In shame. In shame, and like the custom is the mark of Cain here. Yeah, and again, like I give Thompson so much credit for how she inverts the iconography because she takes the tiara and she says, "This crown is cursed, and you will never be able to remove it until you atone, until you you make up for what you've done." That's brilliant. I thought that was amazing. Like the bracelets become shackles. Hmm. And I thought that, like that was really, really clever. Okay, now that you're talking about it, yeah, that's really clever because it does actually harkens back yeah. to the Marston's version where you know they're talking about binding, and here it's like it's a different kind of binding, but it's the same thing, right? Well, I I don't know if it's the same thing because like with Marston, no, it no, was it's it's a different sexual. interpretation of the same general idea of you know you are bound. Yeah, you are literally. Bound here, not by, you know, bound by men you lose your price. You are bound by the shame of what you have done. Exactly. Her outfit that she uses in battle, the, the iconic part of her, her costume, is a reminder of her failure. You made me love this a lot more, you know? It's, like, I, it's I, I, all I, there. I still have problems with it, but now that I've talked to you about it, it yeah, I like this <laughs> a lot more, you know? Oh, yes, yeah, sure. But at the same time, like, I, I completely take your point and it's sort of like put a damper on my enthusiasm for it. This is a fantastic setup that, as far as I know, we will never see again. We were like on a seesaw and I was down and you were up <laughs> and now we're on like a perfect balance and we can't move one another. It's like, oh yeah, it's better. No, like, beca- because it's you're not right. as good as I wanted it to be. No, but because you're right. Like, what more is there to be said when you have the evidence right in front of your face that even if this were an origin story that DC officially endorsed and asked Greg Rucka to incorporate or whatever, right? Even if this was meant to be canonical, it wouldn't matter because the next person who writes Wonder Woman after Rucka is probably going to come back and be like, no, she actually wasn't made of clay, but she was really the daughter of Hercules and not Zeus like she thought. It does feel like on a certain level there's futility. And because she is DC's highest profile character, they can't retire her. Right? They can't take her out of circulation and then be like, just leave it as it is and let it go for a couple of years and then come back and like maybe it'll stick this time. They don't do that. So it's. No, they can't legally. Be- they have to publish like three issues of Wonder Woman per year or they lose the rights to the character. I get that. But like th- that's sort of like the end consequence of this, right? It sort of locks people into this idea of you're still trying to reinvent the first step of her story. And, like, sometimes you succeed, but even the successes don't matter because at the end of the day, someone else is just going to reset the clock anyway. It's irritating. But on the other hand, it's sort of like if you accept that, if you accept sort of, like, the nihilistic approach of all Wonder Woman stories are equally useless, so you might as well pick your favorites. Uh, Not useless, but, like, doomed to be ignored by the successors. If you accept that, then you can also say within this morass of nihilism... This book, at least, is something that I enjoy. Wow. In this morass of nihilism. Sean, do you write lyrics for Slayer? I should. I, I? You should. Within this morass of nihilism. A sure, I can use life. the extra quarters. Why not? I would like more of this. But, like, this is also a book that I could give to some... I could not give this book to Wonder Woman readers. I could give this book to people who have heard of her, but have never directly seen her on the screen or read her stories. This would be a perfect first book for someone who's reading Wonder Woman, but then they would fall into the trap of, so what happens next? Well, 
Well, it depends. Which which one of the <laughs> twenty versions do you prefer? The, like it turns Wonder Woman into sort of like choose your own adventure. To see Etta Candy, turn to page six. To have her hop on Steve Trevor, turn to page nine. To read Grant Morrison, don't. Don't. Just don't do it. Okay, and I like their one, but yeah, it's <laughs> it's it's really strange that they did like two so very different versions of the Wonder Woman origins, like yeah. completely apart at the same year. Actually, that raises an interesting question. How did Grant Morrison's novel end? You haven't read it? No. Spoil away, because I do not. Like, I don't remember the exact thing, but she was chased by, you know, Amazon hunters because she betrayed their society. And then she was brought back, and the big finish there was that she was able to use the purple ray, you know, the Amazon healing machine, in the way that nobody else did before. And that's the one, that's the thing that I really liked about it, is that it didn't end with, like, you know, her fighting the other Amazons, proving that she's superior. It ended with her accepting a role as a healer, and, like, saying her big breakthrough was, you know, finding a new ways to heal things. But that also ends with her, like, becoming Wonder Woman, period, right? Um... Exactly, because that her end was not, you know, being banished. Her end was going back to a society that sort of didn't want her anymore. I, 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 I liked Earth One for warts and all, but, I, you know, I couldn't pretend that these warts don't exist. There had been problems with Earth One. It was a very interesting take, and a lot more interesting than many other things that Morrison did. But not as interesting as Jill Thompson's take. Um, it, I did like this. I, it's not as good as Jill Thompson's take. I would say it's more interesting simply because Jill Thompson harkens back to, like you said, mythology, and Morrison sets to himself this impossible bar of working with the Golden Age comic, which are, you know, weird in a way that even the Greeks wouldn't dream of. <laughs> you know, like, jumping armed kangaroo is weird. Pass. Uh, so, yeah, so Wonder Woman, the true Amazon. I, okay, I will recommend this graphic novel with a caveat. Readers, listeners, if you are inclined to read this book, I recommend it. It's a fantastic book. But you need to tweak your mindset when you do this. You have to understand that you're reading an origin story that has no second chapter, no real second chapter. Like, if you're looking for the continuation of this story, if you want to know what happens when she leaves her home island, you never will. But... There is value in the story as it is, and Thompson accomplishes a lot of interesting things here that unfortunately no one else will ever respect. So it is worth it on its own. If you are, like, in your head, if you can isolate this from any other context in which Wonder Woman exists, I think it's a satisfactory read. But if you are looking for a starting point to reading Wonder Woman stories you will not be served by this book because no one else will follow up on this lead. So I think we'll finish for today. We'll finish for today. We had a couple of good books this yeah, time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, in- interesting at the very least. Yes. So this was the Smorgasbord. If you want to find more of us, we are, of course, on Seekport. I'm also on the Twitter at Tom Shops. And if you like Sean's lovely voice, he also has a podcast. Sean, give them its name. Yes, I do. I run a video game podcast with Boris Ulyansky called Games of Future Past. We're on iTunes. We're on SoundCloud. We have a Facebook page. Come on down. So that was that. Until next time. Bon appetit.